Morning, Lakes Free Church. It's good to see all of you this morning as we, uh, well, you, you can see things have changed a little bit since last Sunday. We have, uh, we have entered fully into Christmas season, and I couldn't be more delighted than to be able to, A, share that with you, but then B, also to be able to worship you, worship with you, ah, sorry about that, worship with you this morning. Um, I just have a handful of announcements to make. Um, first, if this is your first time visiting with us, then we'd like to have you stop by the Next Steps desk on your way out, and there will actually be a gift bag waiting for you. Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakes Free Church. We have, we have a number of other things that you can also pick up this morning, which is kind of exciting. We're giving away a book this season. It's a, it's a tiny little easy-to-read book. It's written by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's specifically for the Christmas season. And what she does in this book is she walks through some of the, some of the major objections that people have to the historicity of Christmas, and she gives a brief answer to those. So we are giving those away during the entire month of December. We do ask that you only take one per family. Family. We also have something else we'd like to give you this morning. Families. We have advent calendars. And it looks like somebody already scratched off all the days on my advent calendar. But uh, really cool. As you, as you work your way through the month, it has different, different things to highlight about the Christmas season and passages to go with it. So, uh, so, so we do encourage families to grab one of those. Um, even grandparents, if you, uh, if you don't have your grandkids here, but you want them to be able to take part in it as well, please feel free to grab one of those. Again, those are just out there on your way out. So please feel free to grab one. Also, our youth ministry. Our youth ministry has, um, well, many of you are already familiar with it, but we have a mission trip coming up next summer to Kentucky. It's going to be a really amazing opportunity, and there are only two weeks left to register for that. So if you have a teenager, please, please send them on this mission trip. This will be an amazing opportunity for them to serve, doing some disaster relief and such. Again, you have two weeks left for that. More of the details are inside your bulletin, so please feel free to look at that. And one last announcement. Next week is our children's Christmas program. Um, that will be happening during both services. Our services will still be normal time. There still will be a sermon and such to go along with it, but uh, it will be a neat opportunity to see our kids up here and to be able to see them lead us in some worship of our Lord. So be a really neat weekend next weekend. I know that I'm personally looking forward to it. That said, let's pray and prepare our hearts for worship this morning. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for, thank you for bringing us here. I thank you for this opportunity that we have to be in your presence, to be able to rejoice in you, to be able to delight in you, to be able to sing songs of worship to, um, to you together, Lord. I pray that you would guide us during this time, that you would be working in our hearts, Lord, so that our, 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 our eyes, our hearts, our minds would be fixed upon you and your splendor. Father, please just guide us during this time. Lord, we pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Let's stand this morning. fulfill the law and prophets to avert 
came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the
walked across the pages of time he who made every living thing behold him he who heard humanity's cry left his throne to wake as a child he became like the least of us behold
You may be seated. This morning, we would like all who have trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior to partake with us at the table of the Lord's Supper. Today, we get to celebrate communion together. And if you have trusted in Christ, if you have made that decision, if you have chosen to follow him, to put your trust in him, then we invite you also to celebrate with us, even if you're visiting us from a different congregation this morning. If, however, if you're joining us this morning and you've never actually taken that step and you haven't put your trust in Christ, we, we do ask you, at least for now, to abstain from taking the Lord's, the Lord's Supper with us. This is a special thing that we as Christians do to celebrate what he did for us. So please don't worry about any judgment from your neighbor if you abstain. We're just really excited to have you here this morning. Hopefully you were already able to get your communion cups on your way, on your way into the service. If not, feel free to grab one now. I just want to turn our eyes for, for a few minutes to Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6, to prepare our hearts to take communion together. Isaiah 53, I'll, I'll read for you, beginning in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I just want to point out a few things from this passage. Well, first, if you're not familiar with the context, this is, this is Isaiah. So this comes out of the Old Testament. So this is a passage that is prophetically looking forward to Christ and to what he would accomplish. So from, from our stance, from our stance, 2,000 years after the cross, it's hard for us to look at this passage and not to immediately see the cross of Christ. But this was written hundreds of years actually before that event. So a few things to point out from it. First, Isaiah describes our estate. He, just, he describes our situation, and it's not glowing. It's not impressive. As you look at who we are in this passage, there's nothing enviable about it. There's nothing glorious. There's nothing beautiful about our description here. It says that we esteemed him not. It says that we, the, the, that we, uh, we esteemed him stricken. We have turned to our own way. We have despised him in verse 3. Or maybe to put it another way, we were enemies. Enemies of God, shaking our fist at him. And yet, even despite that, even despite our sinfulness, what did he do for us? He bore the price for us. He was willing to pay the penalty that we had earned he was willing to do that, not because we were so great, but because he is so great. And that's the beauty of what we look at upon the cross. And probably the most unfair trade in all of history, he got our guilt. He bore our iniquity. And what did we get? We got his peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
That's what we celebrate then as we look back upon the cross and the resurrection and what Jesus has accomplished for us in his death. That's what we celebrate as we look back to these things. So as we partake in communion today, this isn't something that we do to try to earn our salvation. That was already earned for us through Christ and through what he had done. There's nothing that we can add to that. There was no shortness. There was no lack in what he accomplished. We have nothing to add. We are, simply, we are simply celebrating what he has already done. So we do not partake in communion today to earn salvation. We partake in communion as the result of the salvation that we enjoy. We experience salvation rather only by grace through faith in Christ and his completed work. So this morning, we'll, we will take some time. We will pray through the elements. And once we've prayed, we will take some time to meditate upon these realities. And then when it's time, I'll call us back together and we will partake together. Dick Crombie, one of our elders, is going to pray for the elements for us. Let's go before his throne with grateful hearts. Father, we come before you with grateful hearts, full of joy, celebrating the season when you celebrate your son's coming to die for us. You didn't pay for our sins in a partial installment. You paid for them in whole for past, present, and future. Thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us went deeper than a transaction and severed the chains of shame and guilt, made a way for us to be fully and holy in your presence. We praise you and thank you. Ask you to lead us in this time of reflection. We love you, Lord. Amen.
you can prepare your cup. Prepare the bread, and I'll read from or I'll read from First Corinthians eleven verses twenty three to twenty four. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And reading from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what your son has accomplished Lord, I thank you that he was willing to bear our iniquities. Father, that he was willing to make a way that we might know and enjoy you. Father, you were so glorious and so good. I pray that we at no point would ever begin to view these truths as stale, but Father, that they would move our hearts to rejoice, to rejoice in you. Father, to sing of your excellencies, be overwhelmed by your goodness. Father, I pray that you would just continue to set our minds upon these things. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, this morning then, I get the joy of being able to introduce our Christmas series, which, again, doesn't take a whole lot to realize that I get really excited about Christmas. And with that said, I, I do have to confess to a slight bit of cheating this year. Um, you see, as, as, as many of you are well aware, I, um, I, I, I do have a strict no Christmas, no Christmas music, no nothing like that until once Thanksgiving has passed because I appreciate Thanksgiving. I don't want Thanksgiving to be lost. It's a time to give thanks. It's a beautiful time. And, and yet, we get, to thanks, we get close to Thanksgiving every year, and uh, it's, just, it, it's, it's a struggle for me because I just get so excited about Christmas. Um, so I, I did end up singing with one of my children. I don't want to incriminate them, so I won't give the name. I did end up singing before Thanksgiving, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it was a lot of fun. I, I don't really regret it. It was a lot of fun. I, I, I mean, it, you know, it's one of those songs where it's like, what does that have to do with Christmas? I don't know, but it's fun. Um, and it's, uh, and there, there's a story, right? There's a, there's a narrative that's unfolding as you, as you work your way through the Rudolph song um, where poor Rudolph gets picked on by all the other reindeers, which reindeers are really rude. I mean, when you stop and think about that song, I mean... It's just, it's not, it's not, not appropriate. Um, but, but finally, finally, Rudolph finds some value because, because of his nose, the very thing of his mockery previously, right? Um, a foggy night comes up, Santa is lost, Santa needs help in guiding his sleigh through the fogginess, and so what does he do? He calls upon Rudolph, Rudolph saves the day, and he's finally accepted by all of his other reindeer friend, which again, just totally not, not, that's not okay. But um, 
But he, he's finally accepted, Santa finds his way, and that, that's a good thing. Um, the, the thing I want to focus on specifically, though, isn't so much the reindeer and how rude that they are, though that, that does distract me. Um, I don't want to focus on that as much as I do Santa. It's such a neat thing that he has Rudolph right there when he needs guidance, when he needs guidance, when he needs direction. Apparently, Santa didn't have a mobile or a smartphone. He couldn't just tell Siri, Siri, directions to wherever he's going to go first. Um, He has Rudolph to guide his way, and we're quite thankful for that because then we get all the gifts, right? Um, You know, I, I think most of us would like to have a Rudolph Right? We would like to have a Rudolph, someone with a nose so bright that can guide us in the midst of the fogginess of life and all of its major decisions. Um, as questions come up, as we don't know what to do, where do we often turn? Well, I mean, I think one of the major places that we turn at this point in time is to Google um, and say, what should I do? Uh, maybe we turn to podcasts, we turn to our news outlets, we turn to our blogs, we turn to YouTube videos, we turn to all of these different places trying to seek out direction. What do I do in this situation? None of which are necessarily wrong, certainly not. But where do we turn first is really the major question. This morning, we begin our new Christmas series. We begin our new Christmas series looking specifically at a prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy coming out of the book of Isaiah that looks forward to the coming of the Christ, that looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. We'll spend the next four weeks unpacking Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5, and specifically the four names that we see there. This morning, looking specifically at the name Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. A child should be born, and his name is Wonderful Counselor. And we'll talk about the promise and fulfillment of what it means for Christ to be Wonderful Counselor. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll look at verses 1 to 7. We'll look at the whole context together. Again, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'll read. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun the land of, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, t- in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will do this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word to us. Lord, I thank you that as we look into your word, we can see the beauty and the majesty of your son. Lord, I pray that, I pray that as we spend this time, as we spend time exploring and investigating, uh, wrestling our way through it, Lord, that you would guide us, God, and that you would just make it so evidently clear and that our hearts would be moved. Father, please just work powerfully during this time in your word. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So while many of us are probably pretty familiar with, uh, with, with 9-6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Many of us are probably quite familiar with this passage. I mean, how many Christmas cards does this passage appear on, right? So, so we see it, but maybe we're a little less familiar with the context of Isaiah chapter 9. It's really, it's really an amazing passage. If you have to break Isaiah up, this section of Isaiah probably begins a couple of pages previously in your Bible in Isaiah chapter 7, which is a fascinating section because the whole thing is about this, about this military and political intrigue. So it opens up probably around 735 B.C., and at that point in time, a major nation was on the scene and was, and was gobbling up all of these smaller nations, the nation of Assyria. Now, two other smaller nations were fearful about what Assyria was going to do them. They, they knew that Assyria was going to be bearing down on them, and so they needed to take action. These nations were Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. I know they're really close in names, but different nation. The, these nations were Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, at this point in time, at this point in time, God's people, God's nation had divided. It was no longer just one nation, Israel. At this point in history, they had divided so that there was a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And then it was in Judah that we see the capital, Jerusalem. So Syria and Israel are concerned about what Assyria is going to do them. So, so they make a covenant together. They make a pact. And they try to bring Judah in on the pact as well. But Judah doesn't want anything to do with their, with their politics and such. And so they decide they're going to team up. Syria and Israel, they're going to team up against Judah. They're going to take Judah out and they're going to install their own puppet king so that, so that then their coalition will have three nations joined together, increasing their strength against Assyria. Well, Judah, or more specifically King Ahaz, King Ahaz becomes aware of these uh, political machinations and so he takes action. He takes action and he decides to do his own covenant, his own pact with, well, Assyria. Right? I mean, uh, that's what you do when you have a bully on your block, right? Instead of getting picked on by the bully, you find a bigger bully to help protect you. And that's exactly what he was going to do, which seems shrewd. That seems like, seems like that could be a decent way for him to go to protect the nation of Judah. Except, except God had told his people not to make covenants with foreign pagan nations. God had commanded his people to rather trust in him 
and not in the military might of a larger nation. God had proven himself time and time again throughout Israel's history that he was able to protect them and that they didn't need to depend on foreign nations. So Isaiah the prophet attempts to remind King Ahaz in Judah of the realities of these truths that God was trustworthy, that God was trustworthy and that God would protect them. He attempts to remind King, King Ahaz of these realities throughout Isaiah chapter, nine, chapter 7 all the way to chapter 9, warning King Ahaz of the doom and the judgment that would come upon them for trusting pagan nations over him. Which leads us then to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, specifically 6. In the wake of this prophesied judgment that would come from trusting in Assyria more than God, Isaiah foretold about a deliverer who would come and he would bring restoration to the nation. Even in the midst of judgment, there was still this glimmer of hope for Israel. This ruler isn't pictured as some kind of valiant military leader like what you would expect. Rather, Isaiah states that a child would be born. And this child, this child would be king. A new king in the line, in the lineage of David. David, the highest, most exalted king in Israel's history, whom God had made covenants with, who God had told that from you would come a descendant who would reign forever a new king would come from his line, and this child would be the fulfillment, the fulfillment that the people had been waiting for of so many Old Testament promises. This and other similar promises pointed to a Messiah, a Messiah, a king who would fulfill all of these things. In the Greek, this, in your New Testament, this gets translated as Christ. This is Jesus Christ, right? This is who the Messiah is. Isaiah notes in 9.6 that this child would have four names, four names or four titles, and each of these names were chock full of meaning. It was a very different world back then. When they named their kids' names, it wasn't typically based on the name just sounding really cute. Typically, it was more for the meaning. In fact, sometimes the name sounded really, really bad. For instance, just in the previous chapter, Isaiah named one of his kids Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I, I think I actually pronounced that correctly. Like, it's, it's that bad. Can you imagine trying to fit that into the birthday song? That doesn't, that, that, that doesn't flow. <laughs> um, so oftentimes, they chose names based more on the meaning and less on the actual sound. So these names that are given to the Messiah, they're chock full of meaning. The first name, the one that we're going to be focusing on today is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. Now, I think for some of us, when we hear wonderful counselor, the first place that our minds go is that, okay, so this is someone who's going to be reassuring to me. This, one, this is someone who's going to provide comfort for me. But that's, that's actually not the way counselor is used in this context or even really in the ancient world. Rather, given the kind of military and political context of this passage, it probably refers more to wise direction, wise political direction, right? This wonderful counselor is someone who's going to be able to give sage advice for the nation and take the, the nation in the way that they should go. Now, this is especially contrasted with Ahaz, right? Because Ahaz has made all of these foolish decisions. He's chosen to trust Assyria instead of God. So he is the opposite of a wonderful counselor. He's shown foolishness in his reign, 
This new king would show wisdom, and not just really, really wise wisdom, right? It says wonderful, but that's not really what wonderful means here. It's interesting, actually, as you look through the book of Isaiah, wonderful is typically used, in fact, I think 100% of the time, used of God or the things that God does. That's the way Isaiah uses wonderful. That's not the way that I use wonderful. When I talk about wonderful, I talk about like, oh, my wife's cookies are wonderful. Like, they're, they're delightful, and it's true, they are. Um, or I talk about, like, oh, well, we just watched Elf last Friday, and that's, it's a wonderful movie. It's so funny. I laugh all the way through, which is also true. Um, but, but, but I use wonderful far more flippantly, apparently. Don't tell my wife that. I use wonderful far more flippantly than what Isaiah does. When he uses wonderful, it refers specifically to God or to the things that God does. So when he calls this a wonderful counselor, he's referring to, he's referring to this wonderful counselor as being actual divine wisdom itself. This is godly wisdom incarnate in a person. And this wisdom comes in verse, comes and does these three things throughout chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And in each of these three ways, he, can, he also shows how Jesus perfectly fulfilled the title of Wonderful Counselor. How Jesus perfectly fulfills the title of Wonderful Counselor. In the first way, in the first thing that we see in our, in our, uh, in our passage, we see that he's our light. He's our light. Verse 1 picks up the thought right back at the end, at the end of chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, we find that the nation of Israel, we find that they're in distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they are thrust into thick darkness. That's 822. So, so, I mean, they're completely, they're completely in darkness. This is a symbol of the judgment that they're experiencing. And certainly doesn't sound very Christmassy at all. This is a picture that would come of all of their waywardness and all of their wrong decisions and their rejection, ultimately, of God. This is what God had told them would happen. And yet, God, in his great grace, doesn't leave them in that darkness. Rather, he has something spectacular for them. God, that we see, that we begin to see play out in verse 1. Verse 1 extends hope to the nation. And notice, this hope isn't based on the fact that they're so good. It's not based on the fact that all, they've gotten their act together and now they're moving forward. It's not based on the act that they're just really that great. Rather, it's just a picture of God's grace playing out as God reverses Judah's situation. In the former times, they experienced judgment. The northern tribes of Zebulun and Nephtali would be the first to be conquered by Assyria. But now in these latter times, God was going to do something new, and these northern, lo northern locations would be the first to see, verse 2, the light. They would be the first to see the light. Verse 2 describes this wonderful work of God's restoration and God's grace as, as, as his light pierces into the darkness. What a beautiful and amazing thing. Can you just imagine it in your minds? Just this gloomy darkness with a light piercing through. 
This is the promise of what God was going to do. Throughout Isaiah, God's glory is pictured as light, a blinding light, a long-anticipated blinding light. And, and their future, the future glory, the future hope that they looked forward to was a future of being in his light. And now we see here in our passage, verse 8, this child actually is the light of God. The child is the light. Isaiah continues, Isaiah continues, in him was the life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but the light came to bear, to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Oh, wait, sorry. That's not Isaiah. That's the Gospel of John. Because John, because John rightly sees who Christ is as the fulfillment of this light. He rightly understands who Christ is. Christ is the light who shines in the darkness, according to John chapter 1, verse 5. Not only does he pick up on this reality, but the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, writes that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Right? He is the light of God. And what does it mean for the child to be the light? What does it mean for him to be God's very light? It means that he is God's presence with his people, displaying, revealing the beauty and the glories of God, bringing those glories near to his people. That's, that's the role of the wise counselor, bringing God near. Matthew also makes this connection in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 to 17. Now, when he heard, this is Jesus, this is after Jesus' temptation. He had been baptized, he'd gone into the wilderness and faced temptations. He comes back from the wilderness, and, and Matthew records, Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. You remember what we saw back in, in Isaiah 9, verse 1? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what Jesus was. Jesus was the light of God to the people of Israel. He was God's very presence with them. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it neat? Have you ever thought about why, why we have so many lights at Christmas? Why is it that we celebrate Christmas by putting lights on our house and on our trees and such? It's because they represent who Jesus is. Jesus is the light. 
right? Uh, we, um, on a weekly basis uh, in our household, we like to celebrate Advent with an Advent wreath. And so we, we have, you know, the four candles, center Christ candle. And so each Sunday, we light another candle as we get closer to Christmas. Um, and then we, we have a fun meal together and everything. And we talk about Advent and what it means for Jesus to be coming um, for, for his coming. And so each, each week then, as we light another candle, the wreath gets brighter and brighter to represent Christ coming closer and closer to entering into the world because Christ is indeed the light. Jesus dispels the shadows of night and turns our darkness into light. Jesus is the light. When the wonderful counselor perfect, perfectly displays for us the glory of God, he brings God's very presence to his people. But that's not all that we see in our passage. The wonderful counselor is also our joy. He's also our joy. Verse 3 goes on to elaborate that in the midst of this light of God's presence, the nation is growing. And even more significantly, even more significantly, so is their joy. So is their joy. Now, this isn't a joy rooted primarily in things going well for them. Yes, yes, indeed, things are going well for them, but that's not really the source of this joy. This isn't some kind of a superficial happiness. This is a joy that's described as rejoicing specifically before God. It's a joy rooted in God's very presence, in the light being shown upon them, in the coming of the Messiah. And again, we see this Christmas prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the bringer of true joy. We see it in John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And again, we see it in John 17, 30, or 17 13. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they, um, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice here then, Jesus doesn't just bring joy for us. In fact, he doesn't just increase our joy in these passages. That would be too small. That would be too small if all Jesus did was to take my meager little joy and to make it grow a few sizes. That, 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 I mean, that, that works for the Grinch, but I want something a little bit more than the Grinch. I want my heart to grow more than that. So rather, what Jesus does is he performs an open heart surgery on us. He performs an open heart surgery where he takes his own joy and he implants it into our stone cold hearts. He gives us his joy so that our joy may be full. Because our joy is far too small. It's not enough for my meager little joy to be made bigger. I need his joy. This is what Christmas, this, this is what Christmas, Jesus' coming, means for his people. It means an extravagant, overwhelming, exuberant joy. An overwhelming, extravagant, exuberant joy. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite essays that I like to go back to time in, uh, every year at Christmas, um, it was written uh, uh, maybe four years ago in public discourse. It's entitled, Joyous Surrender, A Rhapsody in Red. 
And in it, the author writes about what he believes, what he be- how he believes the Christian should respond at Christmas time and how they should celebrate. And he writes this. He writes, Christmas isn't tasteful. Christmas isn't tasteful. It isn't simple. It isn't clean. It isn't elegant. Give me the tacky and the exuberant and the wild to represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God has intruded in this world. I love that description. Absolutely. To represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God has intruded in this world. What other response could we have to the joyous news and the nativity that God has broken in, smashing the ordinary world by descending in the flesh? That's exactly what Isaiah is arguing here. The impossibly boisterous fact that God is about to intrude in this world in the flesh. And there is a right response to that. And that response isn't tame. It isn't domesticated. It isn't elegant. It's exuberant. It's exuberant. It's boisterous. It's not tame. The author continues on. Break out into song if you can. Break out into sentimentality if you can stand it. Break out into extravagance and vulgarity and the gym crack of Christmas doodads and the branches breaking under the weight of their ornaments. I'd never heard the word gym crack before, but it's a really fun word, right? Um, I like an essay when I learn new words. Um, The gym crack of Christmas doodads and the branches breaking under the weight of their ornaments. This is an exuberantly wild celebration of the arrival of a wonderful counselor. Both this joy and the previous light are focused on the estate then of God's people, this future estate that we look forward to. This is the effect of God working through his Messiah, through wonderful counselor. As a wonderful counselor, this is Perfect wisdom, he has been the light of God's presence and the blessing of divine joy to his people. And how has he done this? How has he accomplished this? Well, we see that in verses four to five. Point number three, he's our salvation. He's our salvation. Isaiah gives us a picture of how this newborn babe will open these vistas of God's presence and perfection, and he does it by verse four unyoking his people from servitude and smashing the rod that oppressed them, just as God had done in the day of Midian's defeat. Now, of course, because we did recently do an entire series on judges, I know that all of you are judges scholars and are well-versed in, uh, in, what he's, in what Isaiah is referring to here when he mentions Midian. So I won't need to repeat it, but I'll do it just for, just for those who are new to our, to our congregation. Um, so in Judges 7 to 8, we had Gideon. We had the episode of Gideon going to war against Midian. And as he, as he made way, as he approached, as he was trying to decide how to go to battle against them, God began to reduce his numbers, right? He went with a, well, a fairly small army, and it only got smaller and smaller and smaller. And so like Gideon is concerned from the very beginning about the size of his army. He's already terrified. And God's like, oh, you think that's scary? Well, I'll give you less guys. Well, you know what? Maybe you can get by with a little less. So he finally ends up reducing him only down to 300. Gideon arrives with his little army of 300. And then not only does God give him a tiny little army, but then God gives him a plan that, I mean, by, by, 
not, not the best strategy. I mean, it's from God, so I can't say it's not good strategy, right? Because that seems offensive. Um, but it's certainly not comforting strategy as he's going into battle. So all of that's recorded in Judges 7 to 8. But the whole point is, is that God reduced Gideon and yet still gave him the victory. Because where did Gideon have to put his trust? Not in himself, not in his numbers, but rather in God. This is a direct affront to Ahaz then in our current situation. Because where has Ahaz put his trust? In numbers. In numbers. Rather, God was going to show his might again with the most surprising scene. The most surprising scene. Even far more surprising than winning with 300. Even far more surprising than winning with a very surprising strategy. Um, even more surprising than all these things, God was going to win the day with the face of an infant. God was going to win the day with the face of an infant. God would defeat his enemies through the baby king, and he does it to such a wondrous degree that, verse 5, every weapon or every tool for war would be destroyed. The robes caked in blood would be burned. The boots that were used for marching would be destroyed. There would be no more war, and peace would reign. In this wondrous wisdom, the child has brought peace, and the weary world rejoices. Jesus perfectly fulfills this as the bringer of redemption. He has granted us deliverance by disarming the rulers and authorities, by triumphing over them in him, as we saw in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And even more significantly, he delivered us from the greatest enemy, far worse, an enemy far worse than the Assyrian invaders in Isaiah. We see it in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, where it reads, for if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Because you see, we are the worst enemies. We are the worst enemies, mired in our sin, long lay the world in sin and pining till he appeared. Jesus fulfilled a deliverance far beyond the wildest dreams and expectations of Israel. He purchased a deliverance from our sin, God and sinner reconciled. And the result of this deliverance, the result of this deliverance that he purchased for us, we see in the very next scene in Romans, Romans 5.11. More than that, we also rejoiced in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive reconciliation. Deliverance leads to rejoicing in God's light, mediated through the person and work of Jesus Christ, our wonderful counselor. This was a display of his divine wisdom, bringing about a new existence that was far beyond comprehension, in which the pre-Christmas world pined in eager expectation for a rupturing of all reality and the birth in Bethlehem. This is the hope that Isaiah holds out to the people. This is the hope that he dangles in front of them. Hope, uh, hope that's not based on, on the numbers of Assyria. Hope that's not based on the guidance of King Ahaz. Hopefully, hopefully their, their hope isn't based on King Ahaz. Hope that's not from 
a YouTube video, hope that's not based on podcasts, hope that's not based on all of these things, on a news outlet, hope that's not based on all these things that we turn to when we are seeking out hope, when we are seeking out that Rudolph nose to lead us through the foggy night. There is a greater place that we turn to for hope, and that greater place is in a child, in a child. Now, that would have been enough. That would have been enough, but it gets better. It gets better because it's not hard to read Isaiah 9 and to see how these things all anticipate the coming of Jesus, the coming, the birth of Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem, but God wasn't done yet. The advent or the coming, yes, it was fulfilled in Jesus' birth. However, again, advent means coming. Jesus came, but he's coming again. So as we celebrate Christmas then, we, we look back in appreciation and celebration of what Jesus has already accomplished in his first advent, but that should only drive our eyes to look forward to the future when he comes again. Because Jesus isn't done yet. Something even greater is still coming. We look forward to Jesus' second coming and the ultimate fulfillment of his promises. Yes, Jesus was the light, the revelation, and the mediation of God with us. But there's a day coming when all things will be made new, and there won't even be any need for a sun or a moon because the radiance of his glory will be so overwhelming that the sun and the moon will be darkened before him because he is the great light. Yes, Jesus is our joy now, but there's a day coming when we will be so overwhelmed that we'll need new bodies to handle, to handle the overwhelming joy that we'll experience in his presence. Yes, we already enjoy his deliverance even now, but there is a day coming. There is a day coming when every tear will be wiped away, when death will be no more. And even sin itself will be entirely gone, wiped from creation. There is a day coming, an ultimate fulfillment of all of these things, the ultimate fulfillment of wonderful counselor that we looked forward to with a deep longing, with a deep longing, so that we can echo John's sentiments at the end of the book of Revelation and cry out, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Or maybe better said, even so, come, wonderful counselor, come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for the beauty of what you have accomplished in Christ. Father, I, it's so overwhelming to think, not just of the ways that Jesus has already fulfilled fulfilled all of these promises, all of these expectations, all these things, but, Father, the ways in which he will bring even a fuller completion. Father, of the glorious future that we have to long for, that we have to hope for. God, I pray that our hopes, our joys, would be in that reality when we will enjoy you in a new way that is beyond all imagination. Father, you are good. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.
Today, our benediction comes out of Jude. Please stand. This is verses 24 and 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and, the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and have a good day. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.